O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand, upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Last week, Jerry was in Psalm 62. Today, I'm in Psalm 63. Uh, there's some similarities between these psalms. Uh, one, uh, the authorship is uh, given to David or it's attributed to David. Uh, two, they're both psalms of trust or confidence, which means he's going through a hard time, but rather than lamenting, he is speaking about God in a way uh, to help him remind himself uh, how he should be trusting. Uh, and they're both probably going through the time uh, when he was uh, in exile during the reign of Absalom. We'll go over that in a second. Uh, but there's one key difference here between Psalm 62 and Psalm 63. Psalm 62 last week uh, was really more of a pep talk. It was a pep talk to the author and the audience to say, let's remember who God is. Let's remember what God has done. Let's, let's remember that God is good. Psalm 63 is, a, is an outpouring of exuberant, gushing worship toward God. And so it's a conversation between David and God, and David is in full worship mode. Full worship mode. Now why that should be interesting to us is because his scenario does not lend to worship, to exuberant worship. Let me tell you a little bit about what's going on with David. Uh, you can read this story in 2 Samuel 13 through 18. It's the story of Absalom. It's a, it's a pretty gory situation, so read at your own risk. I'll give you the, uh, the PG version this morning. Um, Absalom was David's third eldest son. He was a good-looking guy. He was charismatic. Uh, and, and he uh, had honestly just murdered one of David's other sons. Now, if you read the story, you'll know why he did that. This was not just random or in cold blood. This was a revenge situation. Uh, one of David's other sons had done something terrible to one of David's daughters. And Absalom felt justified and angry, and he took it out and, and murdered uh, his brother. Um, so even though we, it was a vengeance killing or something, it, it was murder. And in the law, murder deserved death. And so rather than killing Absalom for the murder, he banished him from his sight. So for a few years, Absalom is banished from the sight of his father. He can't go see him, they can't talk, and in that time, Absalom uses charisma and his connections to build up um, uh, uh, discontent amongst some of the key people in the kingdom of David. 
What's happened just before this is Absalom has, has committed a coup. He has taken over the kingdom, kicked David out. It says in 2 Samuel, I think it's 15, David is found clamoring up the Mount of Olives, weeping and tearing his clothes. It's not a fun situation. So in the wilderness, in exile, he's homeless. His kingdom is gone. Absalom sits on the throne and is continuing to, continuing to humiliate his father in his absence. It's not stopping. And so in that scenario, we have Psalm 63. David pens it, and he worships God with gladness. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. So what we're going to learn from the psalm today is this. Having gladness in pain, having gladness in pain is possible when we worship God for who he is, what he's already done, and what he will do. We didn't plan this sermon out for the, for the situation that's going on in our congregation today. We planned this sermon months ago. God is an on-time God, so we can praise him for that this morning. We can have gladness in pain. Think about David's situation. It's family-related. He's lost children. It's, it's his reputation, his career, all these things that he, that he had and, and was rich, they're gone. He has nothing. And yet he has gladness. What I want to do is start this morning by, by starting the way David starts. And we have this, this verse, beginning of verse 1. And he says this. And now in English, we, we read this and we kind of glaze over it. There's deep meaning here in the original languages. I'm going to uncover that. God, you are my God. It's a statement of fact, a statement of truth. And then we have earnestly, I seek you. I want you to look at that phrase earnestly. Earnestly means to diligently seek, to long for, to search out with, with great pain. And so I want you to hear what, how David is starting this psalm of worship is by saying, one, God, I recognize something. You are God. It's a truth. I can't do anything about it. It's the reality. God, you are my God. And here's what he's saying with that second phrase. Sometimes, God, it's hard to see you in my circumstances. He's having to fight to remember who God is. He's having to fight to find and remember who God is, what he's done, what he will do, and, and to worship him in that. And what I find comfort in is that David is not just throwing out something that's as easy as the takeaway truth. Oh, just worship God and it'll be fine. He's going to worship God. He's going to find gladness, but he is admitting right off the bat, this is not an easy task. In this life, there's two givens. There's the given that we will have trouble. We'll have pain. It's going to happen. It has happened. It is happening. But there's this other given, and that is the goodness of God. The presence of God. And what David is saying is, when we find ourselves in these circumstances, our fight isn't against God. Our fight is with God against the things that are assailing us. And so this morning, this is the experience I want you to have. This is a quote from Dan Allender. He's a Christian counselor. And um, he says this in his book, Cry of the Soul. The Psalter is a book of worship driving us to God by insisting that we look to him in the midst of our pain. When we do so, we find ourselves and our problems absorbed into his bright glory. 
That's the experience that David and the scriptures want you to have this morning. We're going to dive into these three categories, who God is, what he has done, and what he will do. And my hope and prayer is that no matter what kind of pain we're going through, whether it's for someone else and their loss or our own, that we will look at the greatness and the glory of God and it will envelop us. And the the lesser given of pain will be overcome by the greater given of who our God is. So to begin, we're going to go to that second part of verse 1. We begin, I've got five attributes. Honestly, Psalm 63 could be like a 10-part sermon series. We're going to do it in one, all right? So I'm going to be moving quickly, um, but I hope that you'll track with me. Uh, In the second part of verse 1, we have our first attribute that David is praising God for. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I admit that I sometimes watch survivor shows, okay? Like dual survival, it's awesome. Uh, Survivor man, sweet, okay? You guys are like, yeah, I watch those too. Not survivor, that's a game show. That is not a survival show. Um, And here, what's the number one priority of every survival situation? I feel like after watching these shows, I could just survive all the time. Water. You need water. You may find food, you may find shelter, but if you don't have water, you're in big trouble. Think about David's scenario. He's in the wilderness. He understands in the desert of Judah that you need water. And he's drawing a comparison between his desperate need for clean water and his desperate need for God. The first first attribute that he is praising God for is this. God is essential. God is essential, and this is not a truth just for Christians. This is not a truth that says, well, once you become a Christian, then God is essential to your life. No, every human being was created for what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's an essential. There's the cliche. We have a God-shaped hole in our hearts, right? It's cliche, but there's something true about that. Every human being on the planet desires something deep down inside of them. What's the only thing that can satisfy that? God. God. God is essential to the human race. Now, here's the problem. Over time, we learn that certain things like entertainment or recreational drugs or alcohol or our career or money or relationships can kind of like for a time scratch that itch. But here's what I want to say about all those things. They're mere shadows. They'll never, ever bring the satisfaction, bring the health that the the essential of God brings when you have a relationship with him. When that's plugged in, when that's there, your, your true needs are met, your deepest needs are met only with God. Just like water and our bodies. Jesus uh, talks about this in John 4. He's met with the Samaritan woman at the well. It's the heat of the day. And he says this, can I have a drink of water? And she says, whoa, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. This is weird. And he says, listen, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me for water. And she's weirded out a little bit. And so he says, no, give me some water. She says, you don't even have a cup. And then he says this, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying, first of all, I am essential. I'm really what you need. Jesus is essential. God is essential. We all need that answer. 
Now imagine the tragedy if we knew what we needed. So back to the survival situation. We know what we needed and we actually know where it is, but we can't access it. So if a whole case of water is across the ravine and we just don't have a way to get to it, there's tragedy in that. We know what we need, but we can't access it. David goes on in Psalm 63, 2, to praise God for being accessible. That's the second attribute. Not only is God essential, that's one thing, God has made himself accessible. Look at this. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He's remembering a time when he was in the temple. What's in the temple? The very presence of God. Even in the Old Testament, God made a way for us to be with him. We had to do washings and atonement and all these things, but still there's access, there's grace in the Old Testament law in that God, we didn't deserve at all to be in his presence, and yet God made a way to access him. We have it easier than David does. Romans 5, 1 through 2 says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You see, it's already done, and because it's already done, we have this direct access to God. Through what? Let's take a look. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only is Jesus essential, but praise God in heaven, he is accessible. God has made a way. He's not dangling a carrot in front of us. He's saying, I am what you need, and I will make a way for you to have it. So God is essential, and praise God that he is accessible. The next one, Psalm 63, 3 and 4 it's a little more complicated. Let's look at the verse first, then I'll talk about the attribute. Because of your steadfast love, that word steadfast is important, what we're learning this morning, your love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. That's also important. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Think about David's situation. It is, it is a perfect scenario for deep grief, sadness, anger, all those emotions we might think, depression. His family has fallen apart. His family has rebelled against him. They've kicked him out of the country. And here he sits in the, in the desert. <laughs> and yet, what is he saying? Your love is better than my life. Anything I had over there, anything I have right here, your love, your, your love is better than that. How does that make any sense? How does that make any sense? Here's how it makes sense. That word steadfast it means immovable, never changing. It doesn't go anywhere. And what David is saying is as he looks at his circumstances, he's not saying, if he thought that the answer to happiness or gladness was the removal of his circumstances, he would say, God, your ability to change my circumstances is better than life. But no, he says, no, your love is better than whatever I experience. And so what he's saying is this. The attribute of God is that his love is the bedrock, is the best foundation for our lives. It's the best foundation we could possibly ever build our lives upon. If we build our life on peace or calmness or prosperity or any of those things, what's going to happen? It's going to erode beneath our feet. It's going to erode beneath our feet. David is fighting to remember, 
and he is captivated by the deep, deep love of God for him, and he is fighting to make that the foundation of his gladness. He may have scenarios in his family that are brutal and awful. He may not have his kingdom. We may have loss. We may have all kinds of things come our way that are troublesome, but if the bedrock of our life is remembering that there is a deep, never-ending love of God for the rest of our lives, as long as we live, as long as we live, we have something we can depend on that never goes away, the love of God. This next verse, skip past that. This next verse, Psalm 63.5, is the reason I fell in love with Psalm 63. All right, I'm gonna tell you a quick story. I, um, let's read the verse first. My soul will be satisfied with you as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. It's gonna get better than that, okay? Um, I, about 12 years ago, I was just starting my time in ministry, and I was a young youth pastor in Springfield, Ohio. And we, I was part of this network called the Springfield Youth Network, SPIN, S-P-Y-N. It was like a sweet, cool name, SPIN. I don't know, it's sweet. Shout out to Jeff Pinkleton for getting that group together. Once a month we met and we prayed for each other. We shared our troubles. We, we encouraged one another. We let each other know what was going on in the schools. And then once a quarter, he would take us away for a prayer retreat. All right, so he'd take us out into the country. And I remember one spring day, Somebody had just gifted me the message Bible, all right, the message commentary, and I was sitting on the dock, and I read verse five in the message. You're, I'm, I'm going to reveal it. It's like a big reveal. If I had a curtain, I would pull it off. You could see it. You ready for this? I eat my fill of prime rib and gravy. I smack my lips. It's time to shout praises, okay? Way to go, message, all right? If you're not, the Message Bible is like a super paraphrase of everything. Um, <clears throat> but I remember I, I was thinking in this moment on the dock at this place, I love prime rib. I love it. Like, it's delicious. It's salty. It's garlicky. It's tender. It's all the, I mean, if you're vegan or something, you're really, you're about to lose your lunch. But um, <laughs> it's delicious. And here's what I thought in that moment. Maybe you're thinking it right now. As enjoyable as prime rib is. Like, it's one of those things you just keep eating for the taste. You may be full, you just keep eating it. Do I enjoy God that much? Do I, is God enjoyable to me? Is he like prime rib and gravy? Am I smacking my lips to get more God? And here's what I love about David right here. In his pain, because he sees who God is, he's able just to roll around in God and enjoy him despite his circumstances. It's bizarre, isn't it? He is in a, the most painful situation we could imagine, and yet he is thinking about, man, even I could probably fight my son Absalom, take the throne back, and actually get some prime rib, or whatever, prime goat, whatever it is. Um, but I'd rather just have my God and enjoy him. Exuberant praise. This is where I'm at in my life. I, I mentioned when I preached on Psalms 23 at the beginning of the summer that sometimes I think we all struggle with not really desiring Christ for himself, but wanting his benefits. Like we want his peace or him to handle the situation or heal this thing or do this other thing. Um, I'm still there. I, I, I really, really want in my life to find 
this kind of enjoyment and fullness in Christ. And so from my own journey, I've got two things. So the, the question that you may be asking is, well, how do we get full? I have two, three things, two from me, one from David. How do we get full? First, we have, to, we have to know who God is. You see what David, David couldn't pen this psalm if he didn't know these things about God. He couldn't write down or pray or praise God if he didn't know that he was good, if he didn't know that he was essential, if he didn't know that he was accessible. Imagine, again, the tragedy if David knew he was essential but he didn't know how to get there. Do you realize how many people in our lives are like that? They know they need something, they don't know how to get it. And so the first step is we need to know about God. We know about God by reading his word. Now this is not like some incantation where we read it and suddenly we have fullness. It's just a way to make sure the structure of who God is in our minds is rightly aligned with who he actually is. Step one. Step two, we need to continually go back to God and beg him and beg him and beg him to fill us up. Be my fullness. Be my enjoyment. And, and, and begging him to do that, it's not like the more we beg, the more you're like, okay, keep coming, keep it coming. It's not how it works. He's, begging is us realizing we actually need that. That's what we need. That's what begging is. We can't actually beg unless we know we need something. And the last thing, and David's doing it here, he's modeling it for us, is just to worship God. I, I think about this every time I come and I sing with y'all. First of all, on my vacation, Julie and I visited a few other churches, and let me tell you, churches don't sing anymore. I'm thankful that we sing together. It's great. It's, it feeds my soul. It's encouraging. And so as we're singing together and we sing things, this morning even there are songs we're singing, and I think that what is on the screen is not true in my heart. What is on the screen I know is true about God, but I don't actually feel it or think it or believe it all the time. And what David is doing is, as we worship God for who he is, we're changing the focus on our feelings and ourselves to the actual center point of worship, which is God himself. It doesn't matter how I feel. God is who he is. It doesn't matter what I think. God is who he is. And so as we worship God for the things that we know to be true, even though we don't always feel it, in a sense, we're saying, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's that, it's that tension. But it guides us into a, a heart and mindset of God is this, and there's grandeur, and I'm here, and God is allowing me to be in his presence. And the worship, even when we're, our hearts aren't there, is a practice of, of filling ourselves up. It's almost like force-feeding ourselves. God, Jesus. One more attribute. Psalm 63, 6 says this. He's, he's continuing the phrase, so he's still praising God. He's praising God when? When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you in the watches of the night. The attribute here is that God is always there. God's always there. I don't know about you. There are times when I wake up at 3.30 in the morning and I call it my brain is on fire and I just cannot get back to sleep. I just think about everything and anything. The anxieties in my life, even non-anxieties, and, and here's what I, I want to just point out. Imagine the sleeplessness over the last few years that David has experienced. He knows what sleeplessness is like. He's probably sleeping in a cave with a rock for a pillow. That's a recipe for sleeplessness. And so he knows that even in the dark times when we, when we have anxiety, in those moments when the scenario, the pain is crushing down on us, we are not alone. 
We prayed it this morning in Psalm 23. When we go through the valley, Jerry mentioned this in his sermon last week, when we go through the valley, we're not alone. God's not saying, see you on the other side. He's walking with us, even through the watches of the night. In our deepest, darkest moments of pain, God is there. It's a truth about him. It's not something whether we feel it or not, it's true. It's just true, God is there in your pain. So those are the five attributes. If that wasn't enough, we, we still have two more whole things to go through, so I'm gonna zoom. But we see God is essential. He's available. Not only that, he's the bedrock. His love is the bedrock of our lives. God's enjoyable and God is always there. And now, if you've zoned out already, I want you to zone back in for the next two verses. This, if there, I just thought of this while I was sitting over there. If this sermon were an Oreo, this is the cream, okay? This is the best part, all right? Um, I mean, the chocolate's still good, but the cream, okay. Um, David continues, and he worships God in gladness. Why? Because he looks at what God has done, and there's two things here. Let's look at verse seven first. So he's looking at this, for you have been my help, personal, and in the shadow of your wings, this is like an imagery of, of a mother hen protecting her chicks, I will sing for joy. David is on a personal mental journey, thinking through all the things that God has done for him personally. He is, he is building a personal history of God rescuing him in his mind. And what is he doing out of those things? He is praising and worshiping God for the personal rescue. Think about David's life. As a shepherd, he fought off giant animals to protect his dad's sheep. He survived that. The next level of that is he fought Goliath. God helped him and rescued him in that scenario. Before that, he was anointed king while another crazy guy was king. That crazy guy tried to kill him. Guess what? David survived. God's promise came true. He was king. David is building a, a record of things that God has done for him. And as he looks, he celebrates, and he worships God for have done those thing, having done those things to him and for him. Brothers and sisters, I guarantee God has done something, at least one thing for us, each and every one of us let alone saving us from our sin, which is the biggest thing he could have ever done, there is a long list of things we can revisit in our lives. That job that worked out, that relationship that didn't, and you think, thank God it didn't, right? All these things that God has done for us, we could build a list of all these things. And, and here's my problem, I forget. So when the next problem comes up, what do I do? Oh, what am I gonna do? What's going on? What's God, is God gonna come through? Of course he is. What, what would make me doubt that? If I just simply remember what he's done for Ransom Kent, I have enough evidence right there to say God is good, God is with me, God rescues me. That's the first thing David does here. This next verse is powerful. It may not seem it, but I'm gonna explain it. My soul clings to you. That's one phrase. Your right hand upholds me is the second phrase. Let's look at my soul clings to you. This phrase is a personal effort phrase. David is saying, I personally am holding on to God in my strength. I personally, in my effort, am holding on to God, following God in my strength. If we stop there, this seems like a pull up the bootstraps kind of moment. And we start, who do we start praising? David. Wow, David, you're an all-star. You're, you're a clinger honor like I've never seen before. And, and we'd, be, we'd be doing hashtag David Kling. Like that would be like our, our theme for Instagram. Like I gotta get there. Where David is, I gotta get there. But that's not what he's saying. 
Yes, he's saying, I'm clinging to God in my effort, but it's the second verse that undoes all that. Because you see, clinging to God, following God, is not a job for the strong, or the able, or the whole, or the worthy. That's not who needs that. Who is that for? It's for the broken, the unworthy, the incapable. And so when he says, your right, up, right hand upholds me, here's what he's saying. I'm clinging to you, but the only reason I can do that is because of your power in my life. Since when does this book teach that God will not give you something you can't handle? It's not in there. It says in, in, in Corinthians, if you, if you come into a temptation, I will be with you and I'll help you stand up underneath it. That's as close as it, get, as it gets. That's temptation and sin. The whole point of this entire book is what? We can't do it. We can't do it. If we could do it, if all we got were situations we could handle, Jesus spent a lot of energy and a lot of blood on the cross that he didn't need to spend. If you have young children, you understand this concept, right? If you have young children, you already, well, if you have one young child, you already have more than you can handle. And so, so we have to stop thinking in that mindset. This is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. We need to cling to Christ, and the only way we can do that is through the power of God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So because of our inability, and David's saying this, because of my inability, all I need is God. Because of our inability, all we need is Jesus, the person, the God-man. That's what we need. You see, every other religion in the world teaches, here's what you have to do, and here's how you have to do it. Good luck. There's no right hand upholding. There's no right hand upholding. Christianity says, here's what you need to do, and guess what? Ain't gonna happen. And so, because I love you, and because I desperately wanna be with you, I will uphold you with my right hand through the work and salvation of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. See why that's the cream? So we know, as we look at who God is, and we worship him for that, the possibility of gladness and pain is there. And as we look at what he has done for us personally and for us collectively as a family of God, we can look at that. And then as we worship him for that, there's the possibility of gladness and pain. And there's one more thing. As we look to the future and we worship God for what he will do, that possibility remains the same. First, verses nine and 10, he says this, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. That's not like an exploratory, exploratory journey. That's a bad thing. Um, they, have, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. This is not a good thing for those folks. Here's what we're learning. David's remembering that God in the end will destroy his and our enemies. God, David's looking at who God is and he's remembering, oh yeah, God's made all these promises about my throne, and, and he's delivered me before, and God is not about to let his story be interrupted by his enemies. 
And as he looks at that scenario, he remembers God's gonna, God's gonna win. He will destroy the things that are going on. And so here's the comfort for us. God knows what's going on, folks. He's not absent. He's not aloof. He's not forgetful. He is there and he knows and there is a promise. Anything that is against us, sin, death, the devil, will go away in the worst kind of way. It's going to go away. Victory belongs to our Lord. The second half of this promise, there's kind of a two-sided coin here. David says this, but the king shall rejoice in God. Stop there. Who's the king at this moment? Is it David? No, it's Absalom. Absalom technically is the king. But yet David is referring to himself as the king. Why? Because he remembers the promises that God has made to him. I will make you a dynasty for eternity is what God's told David. And David remembers that. And he believes that God is good on his promises. That's the same truth for us. God is good on his promises to us. Jesus, towards the end of his life, makes this statement. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. There's two amens at the end of this. In this world you have tribulation. Amen? That's, That's true. We see it today. But here's the other thing. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus, through his incarnation coming to earth through his work as as a man, through his death that we deserved, through his resurrection, through his ascension, has overcome anything that can come our way. His kingdom is building as we speak. We're a part of that work. We are about this, overcoming the world. And so we need to remember, what will God do? Not only will God destroy his enemies, He is faithful to fulfill the promises he has made to his children. He doesn't falter on those things. We finish the psalm in that last section on verse 11, and it says, um, all who swear by him shall exult. That word exult means to praise and to worship. And then he says, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. In our pain, it's a good practical practice to just praise God for what we know to be true and to not stop. It's tempting to think and say, God's not with me, God's against me. God doesn't love me, God's not accessible to me. It's tempting. But but what David's saying is all those things are not true. Those things, if we were to say those things, they are lies. And guess what? When God comes into fruition, when, he, when Jesus comes, anything that we say that's counter to the truths of God is just going to blow away forever. But the things we say about God and worship him for those things that are true will last forever. They'll last forever. So to summarize the psalm, here, here's the takeaway truth again. Having gladness and pain is possible when we remember and worship God for who he is, what he's done what he will do. If I had to summarize it even shorter, here's what I want to say. All of this, I'm talking not just covenant, I'm talking our world, all the problems in it, all the pain we have personally, our our tribulations, our trials, it ends in one way. It ends one way. Jesus wins. 
Jesus wins. Death doesn't win. Addiction doesn't win. Hurt doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. Netflix certainly doesn't win. Democrats, Republicans don't win. America doesn't win. China doesn't win. Nothing wins. Jesus wins. And so, for those of us who are children of God, let's cling to that. Let's cling to that in the power of the Holy Spirit. In our pain, let's worship Him for the fact that, that He is who He is. Oh my goodness, praise God for that. Man, that He saved me, a wretch. He saved me. Praise God for that. And there's this thing that will happen no matter what we do, and that is the victory of God and his kingdom. Praise God for that. Let's dive into that and worship him for it. And here's the other reality. For those of you who are pouring your life into anything else, maybe you you state that you're a Christian, It's kind of the teenage angsty experience, right? You state that you're a Christian, but really you're hanging your hope on your career or whatever money you're going to make or your your spouse or whatever that you may have. (sighs) Dead ends. They don't win. It's, It's pointless. If you are if you're even part of another religious tradition, here's what I want to say to you in love. I beg of you, consider the ramifications of Jesus wins. If you know someone in your life that doesn't know that fact or they're pouring themselves into something else, we need to share with them urgently, Jesus wins. It's urgent. They very well may be that scenario we just pointed out. They may know they need something. They may not know what it is. Let's be about that. Let's pray. Lord, as we finish this service, thank you for bringing us together as a family in congregational worship. The importance of this time cannot be understated. To be together with brothers and sisters worshiping our God for who he is, what he's done, and what he will do is is one of the most essential life-giving practices that we can have. And so boldly, Lord, I pray this morning, those who have given up on this time, those who have made this time secondary in their lives, may they come back to us. May they rededicate to this time of worship. This is not just about what we can get. It's about coming before our Lord collectively as a community and telling you who you are. And that realigns us. That realigns our thought and our hearts with you. And it sends us out into the week to be about your business, building your kingdom. I also pray this morning for those who I know have pain. Thank you for your sovereignty and your care in planning out these sermons. As I heard the news this week that was shared earlier, and as the sermon developed, I thought, God, you know what you're doing, as if that's a shock to me. 
praise your name. Lord, I do pray for those in this place that have pain. They would seek out counsel. We have Hope Ministries. We have our own Stephen Ministers. We have a lot of resources here to meet our deepest needs, to to get through the pain and to meet back up with God in worship and gladness. I pray, God, that that is a reality for Covenant Church. Use the words in Psalm 63 to prick our hearts. Send us out from this place to worship you in our lives and to remember who you are. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in your precious son Jesus' name. Amen.